The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Welcome back to P.I.'s Declassified. We're going to talk about a controversial subject today with my guest, April Aguera, a private investigator from Reno, Nevada. But before we get started, if you are a new private investigator licensee in California, don't forget the newly licensed investigator training in light in Orange County Saturday, this Saturday, September 17th. There's still time to sign up. It's an amazing jumpstart for a new private investigator business. Attorney David Queen, who's a former U.S. prosecutor and author of the California Private Investigators Legal Manual, will be providing the majority of the training and for information about this. Um, it's a really important program. Go to www.cali-pi.org slash events. That's for the California Association of Licensed Investigators. So now let me introduce you to April. Thanks for taking the time to be on the show, April. My pleasure. Thank you. So you not only have your own agency, ADH Investigations, you specialize in criminal defense of violent crimes at kind of all levels and all stages, correct? Right. And you're licensed in both California and Nevada? Right. That's great. I, mean, I know it's really hard to get licensed in Nevada. I always hear <laughs> stories about that. Uh, so do, were you licensed in Nevada first? I was actually licensed in Tennessee first. I started my practice in 2001 in Tennessee, mostly doing post-conviction work for state and federal defenders there. And then I moved to California and got my license there in 2007. And I really avoided putting putting off getting my Nevada license because not that it's difficult, but it's so arduous. It was like really painstaking. They want to know your entire life, <laughs> who you, who you yeah. live with, what your bank account is. You know, I was like, whoa. So I just put it off and then I ended up moving to Reno. So I got my Nevada license and um, I'm really happy I did because I love working here. Oh, good. That's great. So yeah. besides, besides, uh, so you do, you've done a lot of post-conviction work. When you were in Tennessee, was that with a, a public defender's office or were you on your own? No, I was on my own. I was actually a paralegal in a law firm there. And it's, I don't know if you read any part of my book yet, but I talk about this in the first chapter where I, I was not aiming to be a private investigator at all. I was actually went to school to be an attorney um, <laughs> in music. Music business, a music you know industry attorney. 
because um, my whole prior career was all music, songwriting, singing. And, um, really? Yeah, and so I was doing paralegal work, um, you know, pay the bills. I love law. I love, you know, analyzing things. I love contracts, really. I love words. And they had this big federal death penalty case, Jamal Shakir case, um, huge gang, you know, national situation, and they lost their, or didn't lose it, but the federal government decided not to fund an investigator. Mm-hmm. So I volunteered. I mean, um, I was just paralegal, and I was I was really digesting the volumes. I think there was like thirty thousand pages of discovery in that case. So my job was really to summarize it, digest it, organize it. And so I started going out on little investigative tasks, and lo and behold, here I am. So that's how I got so, started. <laughs> so what <laughs> derailed you from becoming a, an attorney? Then did you you actually um, went you to know, law school and got uh, your JD? That's another crazy thing. Um, I graduated number one in my university just because I tried so hard so that I could get into any law school I wanted to get into. And every school I applied to accepted me except the really one that I wanted to be in, <laughs> Vanderbilt, which is right wow. there in Nashville. And I passed all the you know, exams within their range and everything. Um, financial aid. I was like totally supported. I had already been offered a job as an attorney when I graduated, and uh, they didn't accept me. So, really, uh, I decided. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't want to move, uh, so I just started doing investigation work, and I, I like it because um, it's more behind the scenes. I'm kind of a quiet, you know, stay-at-home kind of person. Um, and I, I I came to really enjoy what I'm doing, so it worked out. That's really interesting. So you never actually yeah. did go to law school? Nope. nope. Huh. So, okay, and and then um, how did you get your private investigation agency started in Tennessee? Okay, so really my agency is very boutique. It's just me and a couple uh, part-timers that help me. Um, I just... Uh, in Tennessee, it was pretty easy to get a license, honestly, and um, you sign up. You have to have a company. Uh, and- April, let me interrupt you a second. We're, yeah, I'm getting yeah. a, a transmission problem here. You're kind of cutting out a little bit. Okay, sorry. Are you well, in an a air- different location. I'm on yeah. a cell phone. I don't, I don't have a landline. I got rid of those like 15 years ago. Okay, so you're cutting out. Is Can you get... If you're, can you get near a window or something where you get better transmission? Is this better here? Not quite. But we'll keep going. See how it, if, see if it clears up. So, okay. okay. So, um, you were talking about your agency in Tennessee. We cut out on there. So, in Tennessee, you have to have a company to license or work for a company. So, by this. You know, started my own sole proprietorship company and got licensed under my own company. It's a pretty simple process, um, really. Yeah, you're you're st- you're still cutting out. I'm sorry, April. Um, <laughs> you're still really cutting out. Let's. Um, can you move around a little bit? Yep. Sorry, I'll listeners. Keep talking. You tell me when it sounds better. Okay. Yep. And. We always, you know, cell phones, we often have problems like this. Yeah, I'm sure. I just, uh, I don't have a landline. So, yeah, you, <clears throat> tell me if this is yeah. any better. 
Yeah, you kind of sound like you're underwater. <laughs> <laughs> yep. so. Under a mountain right now. <laughs> yeah, you were doing, you were great up until that point. I don't know what happened. All right, well, uh, let me go back to my office then because that's where I started. And okay. uh, see if that works. So, and so then um, in your role as a consultant, because I know you also do consulting for uh, cases across the country. Right. Um, so How- an investigator will call me and ask me to help them either understand the case or help them with a specific witness, like how should they approach the witness, what kind of questions, um, helping to understand some of the issues in the case. I'll do that. Okay. And, and because you aren't licensed in those states, you can't investigate, but you can consult with the attorneys and the uh, defense team. Right. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's a consultant thing. I'm not really doing any investigation. I'm just offering ideas or guidance for them to go investigate. And there are okay. actually, like, I've investigated in different states. You can get a provisional license. So, for instance, I did the Hubschreiter case in Vermont. Okay, April, let me, um, excuse me, let me interrupt. Let's take a quick break and see if we can't get our engineer to clear up this problem. We'll be right back, folks. Sorry for the confusion. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. You're listening to April Higuera. We just got back from having little technical problems. Uh, April is a seasoned criminal defense specialist from Nevada and licensed also in California. Uh, so, April, you were just, I cut you off and you were just getting involved in talking about a case. Go ahead with that. What I was saying was um, you can sometimes get provisional licenses to work in a different state. So, for instance, I did a, a post-conviction investigation in Vermont 
I think it was in about 2006 on the, for Hope Schreiner. And I contacted the state licensing board there and asked them for permission to investigate in their state uh, briefly. And they gave me a 30-day provisional license to do so. Well, that's, that's good to know. Uh, some states are more accommodating than others, but that's good yeah. uh, for folks to know who are interested in doing that. They should contact the regulatory agency in that state. Right. There's a lot of reciprocity. Um, and some states, I don't think, even require a license, like Montana or something like that. But you just have to check every, everyone. And, yeah. then, and then when you're doing a, a federal case, I mean, these investigators fly everywhere. So I'm not sure how that works exactly. But um, I've worked on federal cases for federal defenders. And they're, they send me all over the country. And um, I just go. So I'm not sure what the... <laughs> what you're supposed to do there, but yeah, right, yeah, it's yeah, it's an interesting question. So uh, I started to ask you a minute ago, and then I couldn't hear you. Your answer was uh, maybe our listeners could, and I, it was my at my end. But in your role as a consultant, how does that actually work? That the investigator contacts you, or the attorney contacts you? How does that all come together? Um. Mostly I have some relationships with investigators who might call me and ask for help on a specific issue in their case. So, for instance, I had a new investigator in Tennessee call me and ask me to help her with a death penalty case because she's never done one before. Mm-hmm. And so I actually reviewed the case with her, the whole case, all the discovery, um, and showed her how I do it. And, like long distance over, you know, emails and things, telephone, and then um, offered her guidance and suggestions on how to approach certain witnesses, who, who I would do first, um, what order I would do the witnesses, and what to ask them, and what issues I felt were, were important, and how to work, like, from the outside into the middle of a case um, with regard to witnesses. And what do you mean so by now, that? Now, now April. she's doing them on her own. So I did a couple of cases with her, and now she's on her own. She's doing a great job. So that's fun. Okay. What What do you mean by working from the outside in on it on, with witnesses? What is that? So when I when I want to get to the victim, say, or um, somebody that is witnesses close to a victim or witnesses that are close to alternate suspects, somebody else who may have done this or might have been involved, I want to work from the outside in because I don't really want them to know I'm working on talking to all their friends and family until after I've talked to everybody outside of that. You know, I get as much information as I can because once you get close to a sensitive person or issue, you're going to start getting obstructed mm-hmm. um, so I always work from the outside in I never like go right to the victim's you know mother and say what happened right, right. that's going to be my, sure. my last interview yeah okay all right so um, so you you often work um, with the defense team and strategize on uh, how they can actually attack the the issue at hand or or maybe sometimes right. You're involved in a ineffective assistance of counsel, meaning the meaning the prior attorney didn't do a very good job, and you're trying right. to figure out what to do there. Absolutely, um, you yeah. just in those cases for IAC, you're going to investigate 
the case as it should have been investigated so that you can show all the things that you discovered that could have been discovered. Um, and then you can help, you know, the attorneys brainstorm on uh, issues. I mean, we, we don't really get involved in legal issues, but I still work with the attorney. They're going to explain the legal issues to me so that I know what to go out and get to support those defense claims. Do you ever testify as an expert, April, on, uh, on the way the investigation was done? Not in an, I, well, actually I did at one time. Um, that's actually interesting because there was a case that I was given. This was a homicide case and the attorney did not ever give me the discovery in the case. And I did like one interview, <clears throat> excuse me, of the client's uh, girlfriend who was actually at the scene of the incident. And then I was like waiting, 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 like where's the discovery, you know, I, want to, I need to start working on the case. And so a few months passed and he settled the case. So the defendant took mm. a plea to second degree without any investigation having been done. So a year and a half later, the, the, the now convicted um, decided to withdraw his plea because he mm-hmm. felt he got a raw, raw deal from his attorney. You know, he didn't have a chance. Um, his attorney talked him into pleading because he's a black man in a white rural city and wouldn't mm-hmm. get a fair trial. So he pled, and now he's withdrawing his plea. So I had to go and testify at that hearing to say what was done or not done for investigation on his original attorney situation. Mm-hmm. And so... I said nothing was done, basically, and I was the right. investigator. And um, the judge granted him a new trial, and oh. I was hired again by the new attorney, and we won a full acquittal. So that just shows the difference between doing the work and not doing the work. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And when you and just for our listeners, some people may not know what discovery is. Discovery right. is uh, all the police reports and all the, right. the information the prosecutor has. So right. if you don't have the discovery, it's like you're flying blind. Well, there's nothing the... you can do. I don't, know, um, I don't know what happened at the crime scene. I don't know who they interviewed or what, the, you know, what they said. I don't know any of the forensics. I mean, I have to know the case so that I can analyze what, what happened, what the police investigated, um, what, where they might have made mistakes, um, so all that is part of what the defense attorney must do in every case. They must investigate. They must poke holes in the prosecution's investigation, and you can't do that unless you investigate. So in that particular case, April, what was the key to the acquittal? The key to acquittal was that this was a self-defense. Uh-huh. And, yeah, and so having not knowing known anything about the, the victim, <clears throat> who was a biker, the original attorney didn't take the time, well, I didn't because I wasn't given the opportunity to, uh, we didn't investigate anything about the victim, who happened to be a violent uh, ex-felon and into drugs and guns and all this stuff, and, and they were out with his buddies, and he was confrontational towards our client, and none of that was investigated. So mm. I, I did a inc- 
really comprehensive background investigation on him, all his friends. And even though you're not allowed to bring that into trial because um, the defendant did not know the victim, so he wouldn't have known his propensity for violence except mm-hmm. for the fact of his appearance as a piker, um, the attorney got it all in. She's brilliant. Through his friends who said, um, well, we can't carry guns. Cause why? Because we're ex-felons. And cops who are like, taught to... Uh, approach bikers as dangerous weapon wielding persons. So all that came in, um, hmm. and those were the keys. And and one other real fun part of this was the detective in that case was now retired, and so I went and interviewed him, and he didn't know I was tape recording him, so he just blurted out all this stuff about bias, and he didn't care about this case, and now he got two. He's, this is his word, scumbags off the street, and he could care less if he's charged for jaywalking or um, he can make any case look like a death penalty case. And so it's completely biased investigation, which he, you know, tied up in six hours. He didn't do any investigation either. Nobody did any investigation on either side. So we brought all that out. And then we brought out all the evidence of self-defense, which was compelling. And the jury gave a full acquittal. That's amazing. Good work, April. I, you know, just have to say that uh, normally um, those of us that do criminal defense work uh, aren't are not able to interview police officers. They're not allowed to talk to us. So the right. fact well, that you could talk, yeah. that he was retired. The second thing is, in some states like California, um, you can't tape record surreptitiously. With right. you have to have uh, permission from both parties. So you yeah. were in a state that you could. Uh, actually do that, even though police officers can always tape surreptitiously, private people can't. So right. um, you had the best of all worlds there. Yep. That's why I like working in Nevada, because it's a one-party state. As long as one party knows they're being tape recorded, and I would be the one party, it's legal. Yeah. That's certainly not the issue here in California. We can't do that. So. No, I know. Okay. So, April, I know you're really excited about your book. It was just released this month, uh, Making a Case for Innocence. Um, what, what, uh, what was the impetus for writing the book? Well, I started writing an article, <laughs> which was the article that you actually read on the false confessions, and it turned into a book. That's really what happened. Uh, I just kept going. People kept saying, wow, this is really interesting. You need to, you know, make the public aware this is what's happening. You know, innocent people are being arrested and convicted, just like the guy I just told you about. Um, it happens so much. And and it's my, my message is defense teams need to do the work. You mm-hmm. can't just assume your client is guilty and plead them out or just not care. I mean, you have to care. These are people, and a lot of them are innocent. Yeah, you know, we've really gone from a country that uh, um, we've gone from being innocent until proven guilty to being yeah. guilty till proven innocent. Yeah. It's, it's true. It's crazy. Um, a lot of juries I've found, you know, once someone's arrested, they just believe the cops got it right. And it's not true. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, the police... The job of the police is to establish enough probable cause for arrest. Their their job isn't necessarily to 
ferret out every uh, everything to to solve a case. That's not really their job. Which so, is why we need zealous, zealous defense. That's to why we need some work. Defense. That's the only way to create balance, unfortunately. So uh, it must uh, be done. So if people are interested in your book, Making a Case for Innocence, uh, April, where would they go? Amazon? They can go to Amazon. It's also on Kindle now. Uh, just search Making a Case for Innocence. And you can also go to my website, makingacaseforinnocence.com, and get it through there. It's uh, been out for about a week now. So brand A whole new. week. <laughs> That's <good>. Yeah. <laughs> and how long did it take you to write it? Uh, you know, interestingly, I've started like, I don't know, five books or something that I've never finished. And uh-huh. this book, I think I wrote in four months. And then I took like two months to review it and edit it and try to get the typos out and try to make sure I was uh, addressing things, you know, fairly because I had a lot of opinions in there. Uh, I took <laughs> some of them out just to be more fair. I even took talked to some, uh, a prosecutor who reviewed my book and, you know, try to, try to see both sides of everything. And mm-hmm. prosecutors, just like uh, public defenders, they're overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed. This prosecutor told me she had to once try seven cases, trials, seven trials in one day. So seven trials in one gave, day? One day. That gave me a good perspective of how oh, wow. things fall through the cracks. I mean, they, they're overwhelmed. That is Not absolutely a, true. Yeah. That, yeah. And any of the public servants, public defenders, uh, district attorneys, U.S. prosecutors, it is amazing how much work they have to accomplish and how many cases they have on their desk. And it was really good that I spoke with her because here I am thinking prosecutors are just corrupt, you know. I'm like, what? Why? Why would you lie? Why would you hide stuff? And, and she's like, well, it's not that we do that. It's like we don't know. I mean, we we go on what the police give us, and you know, if they don't have time to vet all their evidence, you know, that's what we get. And it's just it's just a matter of funding and 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 caseload. Mm-hmm. So it softened me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, well, that, that takes us to uh, talking about the subject of this particular show, and that's false confessions. Most of us can't even imagine confessing to a crime we didn't do. It's yeah. really a mystery. Um, you know, we, we would all say, I would never do that. It's so hard to believe somebody else would. But psychologists say that anyone is susceptible given the right conditions, right, April? I believe so, yeah. Some are more vulnerable than others, and in the stats that I read, one in four individuals that are exonerated by DNA made either an incriminating statement or a false confession. That's crazy. That is amazing stats. That's crazy. Um, I'm I'm assuming a lot of that includes uh, guilty pleas, you know, so you're, you're pleading to something you didn't do just to get a lesser sentence because... Maybe the evidence seems to be overwhelming or you don't understand how the system works and you're just completely fearful of spending your life in jail. But I don't think a lot. Yeah, I, I actually don't think these stats include pleas. I think they're, they're false confessions. Um, my understanding and what I've read is they're false confessions uh, to the case that is, that's... Uh, 
resulted in their um, either going to trial or something that they, they get convicted. That's crazy. Um, what I've read also is that, you know, police are responsible for a lot of that, either by coercing um, or are they actually even some of these defendants come to believe that maybe they did it, but they just forgot, you know, or they, they were blacked out and you mm-hmm. know, they're convinced that they did it. Uh, it's yeah. tragic. There seems to be a lot of um, a lot of factors. Uh, Dr. Richard Leo is a great expert on this um, the subject, but there seems to be a lot of uh, reasons, like you know, like what you said, duress. Maybe they were intoxicated. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe they were coerced. Um, maybe they were just worn down. They'd been being interrogated for twelve or fourteen hours, and they're just they just want to go yep. home. And they're promised. Yep. They're promised sometimes. Oh, just tell us what happened. You can go home. Right. <laughs> and then when you look at the confession, it doesn't match the facts of the case. That's exactly right. How could they if they didn't do it? Exactly. And again, the police often feed them uh, information. So this, this, and this happened, right? You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of times people with mental disabilities. Um, confess falsely because they want to accommodate or agree with the authority figure in the room. That happens. Mm-hmm. Look at Brandon oh. Dassey. What do you feel about that case? I'm sorry, what was it? Brandon Dassey. The, I'm not... the young youngster in the uh, making the case for or making a murderer. Oh, right, right. Yeah, that's that case by not... itself is astonishing. Yeah, um, it's insane. Yeah, and what? And there was an investigator in that case. Did you watch the movie? I did. I watched the Netflix series. Yeah, I did as well. And what was your opinion of the investigator involved in that case? Uh, he he wasn't there. I mean, you mean the defense investigator? Uh huh. He he didn't show up very much in the case. Um, I, I felt like, where is he? <laughs> Well, maybe they didn't want to air air all, all his stuff. I don't know what the strategy was around that, but um, I don't know. And then, um, then he got the person to confess and called the prosecutor. Do you remember that? No, no. He went. He went and interviewed the defendant in jail and and got him to confess, and then called the prosecutor and gave the information to the prosecutor. Got got the young defendant to confess. Yep. Uh, and that's what happened. Ugh, I missed that. Yeah, um, that was horrible. I thought I thought it was a prosecuting prosecution uh, investigator. Yeah, no, I mean, that was the, a... two of those guys were interviewing him, Brandon Dassey, without legal representation here, without his attorney present. Mm-hmm. That's. That's complete uh, negligence on the part of the attorney, in my opinion. And he was he was way over his head. Uh, yeah. was, that was tragic. Yeah, yeah. That uh, just so everybody knows that uh, that's a complete violation of ethics and right. attorney-client privilege. And we are we as criminal defense investigators can never tell what we know about the case unless we have authorization from the attorney. 
and right. evidently yeah. he had the authorization from the attorney to, to do what he did to report it to the prosecutor. Uh, it was pretty wow. weird. Anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> I need to look into that more. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, April, tell us about some of the situations that you've gotten involved in that um, our listeners might like to hear about. All right. Well, on the on the topic of uh, false confession, confessions, the, um, the most major case that I've investigated was that Sedley Alley case, which is a prominent case I talk about in my book. And I think it takes up like five chapters in there. Uh, it, it was astonishing. This is a case um, that happened at a Memphis, well, near Memphis, Tennessee, back in 1985, where a young marine cadet was raped, brutalized. She has over 100 injuries and found uh, dead with a tree branch shoved mm-hmm. inside her so far that it pierced her lung. Wow. It was her- horrific. And so Sedley Alley was arrested because his car matched a car that was seen abducting her and he was sentenced uh, to death. And he confessed the next morning. Um, and I think his trial lasted like three hours. The jury was really? out like three hours. Um, anyway, defense did no investigation because he confessed. And so 18 years later, um, the federal defender asked me to investigate the case just because mm. his appeals were running out and it had never been investigated. So somebody needed to just look at it. Um, all the, all the while, everybody's fighting um, mitigation um, claims, you know, to get his sentence transmitted to life because he's insane. Mm-hmm. So, so he, he, after after he confessed, he made up a story about hearing voices that told him to kill the girl. Um, so anyway, 18 years later, I go out and investigate, and basically I determine that everything I can see supports his innocence completely, Every everything. Like what? None of the forensic evidence matched him. Okay. There was tire prints, shoe prints, hair tears. Um, blood, none of that matched him. Although back in 1985, they didn't have DNA testing um, capabilities like we do now. So they could only analyze blood for a type of blood. So he had type O blood, the same as the victim type O blood. But you can't tell who the actual donor of the blood is unless you test. Mm-hmm. You can only say they have the same type. Um, so the, there was an eyewitness who saw the man next to the girl moments before she started screaming, and then they looked again and saw a station wagon drive off with her. Um, the man they saw was described as 5 foot, 8 inches, 9 inches, um, medium build, dark, um, black shorts, short, dark hair. Sedley Alley is 6'4", 
his glasses, beard, long blonde hair, uh, wearing a red T-shirt that night. I mean, it, it wasn't him. Mm-hmm. And then he he even complained that his confession was coerced. They had him at the police station for over 12 hours, mm-hmm. um, during which time the FBI came in and, according to him, uh, forced his confession at gunpoint at one point and um, threatened to arrest his wife and, and all this stuff if he didn't confess. But, you know, I believe all this happened because when the abduction of the girl was reported, this was on a naval base, was reported to naval police, the police picked up Sedley Alley because, you know, about an hour later he drives by in the same kind of station wagon. Mm-hmm. So they, they think it's a domestic violence situation between him and his wife. So they bring him in. They're like, where were you? What were you doing? He was out drinking. And did you have an argument with your wife? No. Then they go pick up his wife, and she's out at a party with her friends, and she says, I wasn't with him. It wasn't us. Meanwhile, the woman who was abducted was wearing um, marine attire, (laughs) and she was never reported as a Marine, or even what she was wearing, but the Marines who reported seeing her being abducted saw Allie's wife and said, that's not her, okay, Mm -hmm. so everybody's saying it wasn't us, even the witnesses, it's not them, but the police, naval police, decided, we don't believe any of you, it was them, and so we're going to cancel the be on the lookout for this girl who actually was abducted. And we're going to surveil Sedley, Allie, and his wife at their home all night, which they did. They had a cop driving by his house the entire night. So lo and behold, in the morning, the victim is found dead in a local park. Um, mm-hmm. And they arrest Sedley, Allie, and coerce a confession out of him. And the, the reason, that, one of the reasons this was ramped up, isn't this the one who's the, uh, the victim was the daughter of a U.S. ambassador? Right. A very high-profile yeah. case. She's a doc, uh, abduct, excuse me, adopted daughter, uh, very accomplished at school. She was getting ready to graduate the next day. She was engaged to a Marine. Her life was looking wonderful. And um, sadly, Allie had no connection with her whatsoever. So but the anyway, case became I'm, highly, yeah, case became highly political. To boot, yes. besides being a horrific crime. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's very sad. So, I mean, I investigated the case thoroughly at that point and uh, developed a alternate suspect who was more likely, potentially, to have, have done it and um, who fit the description, who was with her that night, who could have had motive. I don't know. But it should have been investigated. Uh, nobody investigated a case because he confessed. And yeah, right. 18 years later, we find all this evidence that points to someone else. And so finally, the attorneys had the opportunity to present all these findings, new findings, to the court. So, April, hang on to that thought. Hang on to that thought. I want to okay. I want to talk about it more when we come back from break. You're listening to April right. Aguera. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
news, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. April Higuera is a seasoned criminal defense specialist in Nevada and California, and we were just talking about one of her cases. So, okay, I cut you off. We have to hear the rest of what was going on with this case, April. Okay. I was thinking I wasn't going to tell you the end, but maybe I will. Um, So the um, post-conviction federal defenders did get the court to hear them on this new evidence, and they compelled the court or tried to compel the court to test the DNA at this point uh, because there was still DNA um, on the body, on the underwear, on... and there had to be DNA on the branch. So, in a nutshell, um, I was called to testify, a blood expert was called to testify, and the famous Barry Sheck, attorney of O.J. Simpson case, was called to testify on behalf of Mr. Alley that this DNA should have been tested. The judge decided that he would only listen to one of us. Hmm. So, <laughs> the attorney's, and, and, you know, that's another thing that just uh, boggles my mind. Why is the original trial judge, the judge of uh, last appeal, you know, listening to whether this DNA should be tested? Anyway, right. same judge. Yes. So he decided only one of us could testify, and the attorneys decided, well, Barry Sheck's going to testify, right? Um, mm-hmm. why, why the DNA should be, should be tested. Uh, unfortunately, you know, Barry wasn't versed on all the evidence that I uncovered, which included Brady material. And okay, why, why don't you explain what Brady material is? Yeah, for listeners who don't know what Brady material is, it is evidence that the prosecution withheld from defense so that the jury never heard it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so the Brady material in this case was um, notes notes that I got from the coroner or the medical examiner. This is the person who does the autopsy on the victim. I got his actual notes uh, that said time of death was 1.30 in the morning. So 1.30 in the morning, Sidley Alley was under surveillance. He was at his home, and that's confirmed by police surveillance logs. Hmm. He has an alibi. Um, so the Barry Sheck, uh did an eloquent presentation, of course, and the... <laughs> Judge went out into chambers for quite a while and came back and gave a long speech about um, the Innocence Project and all the great work they do and how he admires Barry Sheck and could I please have an autograph. This is all on television camera. Oh, wow. The media is all over the courtroom. I was just like falling out of my seat at this point. And then he says, and your request to test the DNA is denied. Um, So it was never tested. And the court decided that this was, you know, a last-ditch effort of the defense to try to save someone from execution because we're all crusaders against, you know, killing anyone, which is not true. And they denied the case, threw it out of court. Um, DNA was never tested, and Mr. Ali was executed. Hmm. And, you know, it is mind-boggling to think that we now have a, a scientific process where we can test DNA. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not done. It's, it just really is pretty amazing that we are willing to take somebody's life without that one step. And here's my argument in further support of that. Not only did we destroy someone who might have been innocent, now I'm not going to go out on the limb and say I know anybody's innocent, but... It was very compelling that he was, might have been innocent. Um, but if he is innocent, where's the justice for the victim? This was an incredibly horrible crime. And where's the justice for his family, all his, his children and his family who have to live with this? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're imprisoned in their lives because of it, you know? Um, his, he had young kids at the time, and they grew up ostracized, and now they have to deal with with the whole stigma. Um, It's just unjust all around. If we Mm -hmm. have evidence pointing in either direction, it must be analyzed. We must care about doing the right thing for everybody involved. The victim victim, needs to be um, protected as well. I mean, what if her real killer is still out there? Right, yeah. And what what about these acquittals we get Clearly, you know, the guy didn't do it, like in another case. So clearly, clearly, clearly he didn't do it. Why don't they go investigate someone else then? Why don't they just drop it? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I don't get it. Okay, we lost, so we don't care who really did it. Yeah, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm just looking at the uh, some stats from the Innocence Project right here. It says, of the 258, I don't know at the, what time period this is, but of the 258 DNA exonerations they've handled to date, 25% involved a false confession. If 10% of the 2 million people involved in, that are imprisoned in the United States are innocent, then it's estimated by the Department of Justice we can extrapolate as many as 50,000 of their convic- convictions involve false confessions. 
And they, also, this was... they also extrapolated another um, statistic or, or estimation that of the 2 million people that are currently incarcerated, there's likely 20,000 of them that are innocent right now in jail. Well, as you and I both have seen in the courts and in cases and with, I mean, there's some great attorneys out there, but there's attorneys that, that like the, your situation that don't follow through and do anything. Right. Uh, I don't doubt that. You know, it's, uh, as investigators, we often find information that is critical to the case. That, you know, not that the police didn't do their job, but maybe they didn't know about a witness that happened to be an eyewitness that the investigator found or, you know, there's all kinds of reasons. Right, or they don't have the time that we have. We have the luxury of time. Um, you know, we have we have budget caps and things, but if you're a diligent investigator, you're not going to care so much about your budget cap. You're going to finish your case. Right. And you yeah. do the right thing. We have the luxury of time, and we're working on, you know, that one case at a time, or maybe three or four cases at a time, but we're right. not working on 50 cases at a time. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. But they also have 50 investigators as one of us. So, <clears throat> I don't know. I just, I have, you know, unfortunately, come across in my cases much corruption um, by police as well, planning evidence, um, coercing statements, um, it's a lot of stuff. I mean, I don't see any reason for it. Is there any reason we just can't do the right thing? <laughs> you know? uh, I agree. I agree. I, th- I, th- I think a lot of it is time constraints, uh, you know, making their bones, uh, getting their promotions. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot goes on. It's, you know, we're all human. And so uh, that human factor plays into it when it comes to, um, you know, being under the gun. I'm sure it is, you know, you're under the direction of a sergeant or a captain that wants you to get your cases done and you they want them done and resolved quickly. Yep. I'm sure that plays bad, into it. I'm bad but true. Yeah. yeah. So as far as um, there's kind of different kinds of false confessions, can you talk about those a little bit, April? Uh, well, from my research, again, I'm no expert on this, but um, I think there's three major categories. There's voluntary false confessions where people for some strange reason will just confess to something clearly they were not involved in. <laughs> like, um, I read that the the Black Dahlia murders, you know, I think it was Elizabeth Short in 1947. Um, in, Los, in Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah, 60 people confessed to that murder. 60 people. Um, none of them did it. I don't know why. <laughs> it's a psychological, mental thing for notoriety or tension or something. Um, and then there's internalized false confessions. Um, and what is that? What is internalized? It's apparently made after intense, suggestive police in- interrogation, um, which results in the suspect or the witness, whoever, coming to believe that they actually committed the crime and simply don't remember it. Like I mentioned before, they blacked it out, or they just, wow, I must have done it, you know? I don't remember doing it, but I must have done it. Like, they're convinced that they did it mm-hmm. by, by police. And then there's the compliant false confession, which would 
which Allie would fall into, silly Allie, where there, it's coerced. Yeah, and, it, and, and that, those are the ones that bother us, really. Yeah. Coerced confessions. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and in your experience, April, what would you say would change that? Is there any one component that you think would may impact uh, coercion? Well, one thing would be just awareness, you know, public awareness. Number one, that this happens, that please do this um, almost on a regular basis, I would say. If you read the Chicago reports about um, Chief Burge and how... I can't remember his name. One of the detectives that worked under him boasted 90% confession rate on mm-hmm. all his sub, all his arrestees. He got 90% of them to confess. How did he do that? So all those cases are getting overturned, or many of them. But that this happens. Um, so you need to know, be aware of your rights and the laws and how the legal system really works. Um, and don't fall prey to this intimidation. Uh, so awareness, that's part of, you know, why I'm putting this book out. I want people to be aware <laughs> that this happens to normal, everyday people. Hope mm-hmm. Schreiner, she's a 73-year-old grandmother right. who was accused. Uh, Max Roybal, I talk about, was accused of two murders. We got him acquitted of both. There's no evidence. Once they target you, you're in trouble. You, you got to have a great defense team. Don't don't grant interviews to police um, without representation. And I, you know, I don't know what the answer is, except for everybody to care about doing the right thing. I mean, that includes police. I mean, aren't they there to protect the people, not persecute the people? What What about um, uh, videotaping all interviews from beginning? That would to be end? lovely. Yes. I would which, love that. Which doesn't happen. Uh, we do have a we have something uh, in California that is happening where uh, they have to they have to t- tape or they have to video from beginning again, which many Good. police departments didn't used to do. But right, um, yeah, that's that's a problem where you have uh, this interview done in secret, interrogation done in secret, and you only right. know what sh- is shown in the police report. Right, and police reports. Um, rightly, intentionally or unintentionally, are not often accurate. Yeah. yeah. So once you start reporting based on a police report, all these media reports are based on police reports that are inaccurate. And now the public thinks somebody did it. I mean, I have a lot of instances of those um, in my book as well, which are interesting to read. But ultimately, we just have to be people who care about people, people who do the right thing. I mean, we can all make money still doing the right thing. We can all live a good life doing the right thing, caring about each other. We don't have to be so greedy. We don't have to be so um, narrow-minded, you know? I mean, let's just do the work. Let's make sure we have the right person, and let's, let's care. Let's make the system be just. And on that note, April, I think that's a great message to leave our public with. Um, 
We're at the end of our show, and just uh, a shout out to our sponsors, Jimmy and Rose Murray Messis and PI Magazine, who provide a forum where private investigators can learn and are inspired. Uh, PI Magazine at www.pimagazine.org. And for the rest of you, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators and investigators just like April Aguera, related topics on anything to do with private investigation. Thank you so much, April. Interesting show, and appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. Good luck on your book. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.